Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Touching Greatness. I'm Alan J. Santos, and today I'm talking with Emily Kwok. When I was a young musician, learning about music and learning how to play the bass, I would listen to records and I would study the liner notes. Whoever was playing in the band, I would go find their recordings as a band leader or in other bands and go listen to those recordings. This way, I felt I could really get to know a musician what they were about. And more than a decade ago, I found a book called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. This is a book that I've gifted the most and the book I've recommended most often. It was especially insightful and inspiring to me while I was navigating the competitive environment of orchestral auditions. And over the years, I listened and studied any interview that Josh was part of, and there were not that many actually. And in one of those, I heard the name Emily Kwok. I found some of her writing on the Princeton BJJ School website, but beyond that, not much more information about her or what she did. Then about a year ago, I saw that she had just created a new personal website, so I got in contact. We had a few conversations, we met in person, and from those interactions, I decided to hire her as my coach and my mentor. Now, Emily is a multiple-time International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation World Champion with a recent win at the 2022 Pan Championships in the Masters III Middleweight Division. She's been training and competing in BJJ since 2000. She is also an early veteran of women's MMA with an undefeated record. She was the first Canadian woman to receive a black belt in BJJ and also the first to become world champion. She is well known as a legend ahead of her time and is widely regarded as a true jiu-jitsu pioneer who's paved the way for women in the sport. She's a co-owner and head instructor of Princeton Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. She leads seminars throughout the world and martial arts is only one facet of what makes up Emily Kwok. She's a wife and the mother of three young children. She runs her own peak performance consultancy and she works closely with Josh Waitzkin in running his coaching and consulting business. She's a podcaster, a writer, and an artist. And as I mentioned, she's my current mentor. When I am with her, what I am present to is the dynamic force that she is. She has this ability to move very quickly. And at the same time, she also feels like a grounding force. She brings depth and quality to everything she takes on. She brings the richness of her experiences to every interaction. I love her perspective on all things, and anytime I'm with her, I end up with pages of notes to consider. I appreciate her intentionality and her ability to create connection and relatability. I could go on and on. Without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Emily Kwok. Emily, thank you for being here on Touching Greatness. Um, Man, there's so much I look up to you. Uh, you're one of my favorite people in the world. So I'm so excited to be in this conversation right now. Thanks for being here. Thank you. That's a huge honor. Thank you so much for, um, for choosing me to be in your life. And I'm, I'm very happy to share this space with you. Awesome. I'm 
going to start uh, with a reading of some words from Pema Chodron. Our wisdom is all mixed up with what we call our neuroses. Our brilliance, our juiciness, our spiciness is all mixed up with our craziness and our confusion. And therefore it doesn't do any good to try to get rid of our so-called negative aspects because in that process, we also get rid of our basic wonderfulness. We can lead our life so as to become more awake to who we are and what we're doing, rather than trying to improve or change or get rid of who we are or what we're doing. The key is to wake up, to become more alert, more inquisitive and curious about ourselves. I specifically chose this for you. I spent some time thinking of a, a nice, um, something that encapsulates who I'm speaking with. And this really, it was hard actually to come up with something. You're so dimensional, you have so many dimensions to you. You have so many different ways you express yourself throughout your life. So it was a bit of a challenge to narrow down on something, but I thought this was really fitting. Um, one of the things I find really remarkable about you is your ability to navigate polarities. And that includes all the different poles of who you are in your life and do that with a lot of nuance and a lot of wisdom behind it. So I thought this was a really great place to, um, I thought this, these were really great words that sort of encapsulated who you are for me. Um, I'm wondering what you think of them. Yeah, so um, thank you for the for those words, and thank you for the passage. I I would I would say that I think for most of my life I have not known what I was doing. I I just only knew to follow what felt good for me, and I think that I learned to listen to me at a young age because of an unfortunate. Uh, situation with my parents, you know, um, I, I, I don't mind sharing that when I was 14, um, I don't think it was meant to be a permanent, um, uh, kicking out, but my, but my father had had a bad day at work. And when I came home, uh, I was eating dinner with my mother and he returned home and he was just very upset with probably a lot of things that had nothing to do with me. Um, but in, in one moment, he kicked me out of the house for not bringing the trash can in from the curb. And that was not a daily duty of mine. It was not a daily chore. So it was just kind of a random uh, occurrence. But it was so upsetting and shocking to me that I took my jacket, I stopped eating dinner, and I left the house. It was, it was still light out, um, maybe like around 4, 35 o'clock. And I had no idea what to do other than to just walk to my friend's house, whose mother was a social worker. And I just thought, you know what, I think she will know what to do with me. And uh, I was 14. And for probably obvious reasons, looking backwards, but in the time, uh, I really just didn't know how to make sense of myself. And only in my later years did I really come to uh, fall on the, on the sense of loneliness and abandonment. And I would say like emotional betrayal of that situation. And, um, for better or for worse, it kind of forced me to do for me. 
it forced me to be accountable, good or bad with my actions. And so, um, you know, depending on who you talk to, I'm more or less successful in life. But the thing that I know that I am successful at is uh, giving my giving myself the space to breathe. Because since I was 14, um, it's I've I've largely felt it it could only be me. And so, in that opening passage, when we think of sort of the entanglement of all of these good and bad things, you know, good and bad things about us, or desirable or undesirable traits, the lightness and the darkness. Um, Again, I'm still learning to make sense of it, but I think that the truest person we can become is the one that doesn't neglect or try to uh, ignore or cover up the things that give us trouble about ourselves, but that we need to, at some stage, learn to embrace the lightness and darkness inside of us and know that those are the things that make us uniquely us. And so... um, you know, what is the wrong and the right way to do that and how successful or unsuccessful will you be? I don't know by sort of um, common signifiers of what people identify success to be, um, would be, but for myself, uh, I rest easy when I put my head down at night. Mm. I can wake up and feel good about the day that I'm going to have. And uh, I generally feel grounded and happy to be here no matter whether i have a challenge ahead of me or not i i generally feel like i can be present for it yeah that's beautiful i was talking with a friend a little bit ago about just being yourself and how that it's really the i I was mentioning to him that i thought it was the easiest thing to do and the the best way to move forward as well as it's the hardest thing for us to do at the same time And I love that you're defining success for you and what that is. So one of the things I'm curious about right now is your world champion in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu many times over. And you also train people in peak performance and uh, help nurture the best performances out of people in many different domains. how do you, for you, define high performance and excellence in your life? Good question. I think it's taken on different forms at different stages in my life. I think earlier on, I felt that high performance and peak performance was a matter of being the best by everyone else's standards. And those standards generally being the standards that are set by your peers or by your teachers. And I look at this very much as sort of like an unstructured, a a climb from the structured into the unstructured path or the way, which is when we are learning something or we're taking it on, um, we often do what people previous to us have done, what the masters have done, what our peers have done, or perhaps there's a book or a manual or a way that you're supposed to do it. And I think this is the easiest way for most of us to learn is to imitate and copy the things that have been done before us. And by using that external measure, we we figure out where we are in that ladder. Are we a quarter of the way up, 75% of the way through, or have we completed it? Um, are we struggling in a certain area? You know, like we use these 
commonly known structures to figure out how to make sense of how much we know to measure the value of, of our of our understanding. But as I've gotten older and as I have progressed through different stages of thinking about what is good or what is peak or what is you know high level, um, I think what I've come to really realize is it's not just a matter of learning those foundational um, lessons. And they're foundational because many people come to them, right? Like when you learn about color and you're a painter, there are certain <laughs> ways to mix colors. And so we learn those things. But as we get better and as we internalize those lessons, we begin to develop the ways that we would do those things. You know, the old saying of like, you learn rules to break the rules. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying we break the rules all the time, but but we need to see the rules first. And we learn the rules. And then we get to a place where, where we say, do these rules make sense for us? And to me, high performance and peak performance now is not just a matter of, do I know the rules? But what rules do I keep? What rules do I rewrite? What rules do I create and integrate? What is my path? And I think that peak performance is really about understanding the self deeply enough that you create a path forward that doesn't have friction that doesn't have road bumps, um, but in many ways gives you the path forward that you need to be at your best and to essentially am amplify who you are to the world. So it's evolved. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's so much here. Um, one of the things I, I run into for myself and people who I work with run into as a friction point is the, the idea of high performance or excellence. And some of it's what you're saying, trying to define it for yourself, moving beyond the structures of, it's like, if we're just following structure and how to, it can be really hollow. There's nothing of ourself that is infused in the expression of step one, step two, step three. That thing that is inspiring to other people is how we express ourselves through structure. At least that's how I see. So one of the friction points I see um, is how do you define high performance for yourself? Is it the people who are real champions have set their own bar and measure themselves up to themselves, right? So is it this thing of measuring yourself to you and doing the best at the best that you can do. But there's this other component of it as well. It's like, how do I line up in the stack of other people in my domain doing these things? And for me, there's always this fundamental tension of like, well, I did my best, but if I'm like doing my best and like let's say I'm studying math or something and if I've done my absolute best and I failed the test, that's for me, that's not really like high performance or peak performance. At the same time, we can sort of look at someone like Usain Bolt. There's no judgment against him, but he's, he's lighting off the gear in the final 10 meters. So his, we don't actually know what his best time actually is. I wonder what it would be if he really pushed themselves those last 10 meters. And like I said, there's no judgment here, but these things that, that always seems to be like a fundamental tension point for me. 
defining it for myself, but also how does that relate to the external world? Because we always do relate to the external world. Or do you? I mean, so I think like the, for me, the, the tension of like internal and external orientations or voices, like what pleases you? What mm -hmm. gives you satisfaction? So for example, in a competitive mindset, um, up until recently, my favorite performance in my career was a, was a, actually a loss. It wasn't a win. Um, when I, when I used to compete, I didn't necessarily, like the competitive world of jujitsu was just growing at the time. Uh, and my intention to compete and be out there was more so to see who else was out there to see how I did with my peers, because it was so few and far between to find another woman that trained. And so competitions were some of the only ways that you could get out there and see how you, how you might measure up. Uh, although I was looking for that engagement with another individual, I wasn't necessarily doing it to get the gold medal. I wasn't doing it because I wanted everyone to see who I was. I was doing it because I had this internal challenge of, well, I'd like to see if I know what I'm doing or not. You know, I'd like to see how else other people do this thing. I won more, way more often than I lost. And the winning kind of became static because it was the same series of movements over and over again. And so even in winning and having external gratification, it was very static to me because I was doing the same things. And I found it very difficult for myself to open up and try something new because here I had this external uh, value system pounded into my head. Like if you keep doing this, then it's good, right? If you keep doing this, then you win. I figured out the formula of how to be externally gratified. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one of my fav favorite performances or most meaningful performances was one where I, uh, I had broken, I had a very bad break of my finger and I couldn't train properly for a very big event. And I was only able to train about two weeks prior to the event, which is generally not enough time. And when I went to go compete, I took the round, I fought the finalists from the year before and I took the, uh, the fight into overtime and I fought better than I had ever fought from the perspective of, I had more heart than I ever thought I could have. I, I tried things that I never would have tried. And even though I lost the overall match, I was very proud of my performance because I didn't just do what I always did. Now, more recently, um, post, you know, having children, I've been able to go back to the, to the competitive arena as a master's competitor. And though I'm not fighting people in their peak, you know, youth, right? Like I'm not fighting 25 year olds. I'm fighting other people in the same age bracket. I find as a competitor, I'm performing 1000 times better because I've liberated myself from feeling that I have to do things the way that you're supposed to do them. I found my own way of, of winning. And for me, my own way of winning is I want to show up and be able to tap into all of the knowledge that I have, not just some of the knowledge. I don't want to execute a very strategic formulaic win. I want to go in and have the flexibility and the freedom to do anything that I might need to do to win in this moment, because that shows me depth of knowledge and mastery. And so Yes, it's nice to have the external win. And I've had those things happen as I've sought out my, my personal win. But I think it's 
really an examination of how we orient ourselves. And I do think that for a lot of people, if you do listen to the internal voice, um, then the external kind of fall, follows hand in hand. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it always works in reverse, but I will say like, if you follow that deep internal voice, it's very hard to deny the external gratification. Sometimes people don't even have a sense of how to even get to that internal voice. I mean, what, I, what I'm getting about you is you're really in tune with it. Um, even f- in the first story of like just leaving home, there was a voice that said, oh, go here, you'll be safe here. And it seems like this is something you've nurtured since you were very, very young. So for those who, you know, there's other internal voices, like, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think of an internal voice, it is one of self-judgments and self-doubts and that kind of chatter. But getting to that other voice, that there's that quiet whisper, that one of knowing, um, how do you how would you recommend people nurture that if they're not even aware of that thing that exists? Well, uh, so it's, it's interesting, right? Like uh, I followed the work of a psychologist named Robert Keegan for a little while. I was, I was turned on to it by a friend of mine who's a psychologist. And um, what's interesting is like, I, I think at an earlier stage, like they, so with regards to adult development, Keegan, Keegan believes that theorizes that there's stages to adult development that were not fully cooked by the age of 18. We can continue to mature and evolve. Um, but they don't really know what causes people to evolve. They don't know what makes somebody go from this stage to that stage. And I'm not a psychologist, but I would reckon that somewhere in my past, um, it wasn't a choice. It was like evolve or die, you know, mm-hmm. evolve or you're not going to, you're not going to survive, you know, and maybe there's always been a fighter inside of me, but I just refuse to fail at that. And so when you talk about, listen to the inner voice, maybe I'm a weird um, example or uh, an anomaly in the sense that I've only ever been able to trust that inner voice because my external supports, my family did not, was not going to be there for me. And so I think that when we talk about self-consciousness and the voice of like, we shouldn't do this, that inner judgment, is it really inner judgment or is it that we've been programmed and we've been taught and raised to trust all of these external structures and people and communities? Do we trust their values and what they think we should do more than we trust our own? And in my case, I had it broken so early that I was like, well, if I can't trust you, I've only got me. So I just listen to me, you know? Right. And I think yeah. that that's something that most people who, who are raised in a more uh, balanced and healthy familiar f- familial ecosystem don't necessarily experience because who do we do things for earlier in life? We do things to please our moms and our dads or our grandmothers and our grandfathers or the teacher there is an external relationship that we're always seeking their approval, right? Like that's how we learn. Mm -hmm. That's how we do well. That's how we achieve. But when that 
person or that thing goes away, like, what are you supposed to, what is your measure of progress? You know? And so I think that, um, I'm probably a weird example of this. Like I, as I, as I reflect back on my life, you know, as I've gotten older, I'm like, yeah, why am I, why have I had this strange life where I've just done things? Why, why have I managed to make pathways or headways and areas that most people would consider to be really difficult. Well, nobody was the boss of me since I was 14, (laughs) you know? So I'm just like, maybe, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing, but I just don't care. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, and certainly it's made you take just 100% responsibility for yourself. And when you do that, it really does build that kind of trust in yourself because you're left with just you, like you're saying. Yeah. But the downside of that, and like, ultimately everybody's strength is also a weakness, right? So Mm -hmm. my ability to listen to myself, my ability to be accountable for what I do, the flip side of that. And something that I'm really feeling right now is that then you become too responsible and too accountable to the things that you build, the things that you create, the things that you feel are responsible for. Right. And then it's hard to evolve into another stage. Yeah. Now you feel, oh, like I did this thing and it's only me. And what will happen if it's not me? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you kind of just always have to be aware of that tension, I think, in terms of how you choose to walk through the world. Like, is it really like how much of how much of, of my path is my own doing? How much of it is um, you know, motivated by external things? And neither one is uh all good or all bad. But I think when we just look, take perspective on what it is that we're doing with ourselves, it's good to know sometimes where the motivators are Yeah, so that we can actively move towards things and actively release things. Yeah, that, that ability to zoom out and find different perspectives. I mean, that's one of the things we're working on a lot with me. Um, you know, when you were speaking about the place that your gift also has a dark side. It reminds me of like some artists who are only listening to their internal voice and not able to zoom out to see how they're affecting, they're so self-absorbed that they're not able to see how that is having an impact on the the world around them, their family, their communities, uh, their fans, all that stuff. And the ability to see yourself not only from how you relate to yourself, but also, wait, how is it that someone else might be seeing me? And is that how I want to be moving in the world right now? Um, I think that's particularly insightful and some very powerful work to do when you're navigating these kinds of friction points and polarities and ways of moving through the world. Yeah, I mean, when you think about why you know, in my, in my sort of part-time life of being a jujitsu athlete and owning a school and being a teacher, it's always uh, a revelation to people as they become teachers, they go, at first, it's very hard for them. Mm-hmm. And then once they sort of get used to it, they go, man, I love it. And it's, it's improving my game. Like it's improving my technique. Like I'm seeing these things and I'm doing these movements that I never thought I could make. And when you ask somebody why, or you really dig into why is that the case? Why is it that when we teach someone else something that we know, that it makes us grow, right? Isn't it just supposed to help them grow? 
But I think there's something there about being the subject and the object. We are no longer subjectively experiencing the thing that we do. We now have to objectively look at what we do and how that lands on people. And so when you can take yourself from the subject to the object and back or subject and object and change perspectives, it just gives you way more feedback and way more information that you don't have when you're just looking at your life with your blinders on. And that's what most people do is we just go, oh, why did this happen to me? And like, this is my experience of life. And this is what it's always going to be like, is it? Or is that just your perspective from where you're sitting right now? If you looked at this from the other side of the table, or if you looked at this from, you know, 20 feet down, would it be the same? And oftentimes the more information, the more perspective we add, the better our outcomes can be because we are coming to it with a more abundant um, plate of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of um, just that zooming out a while ago. I was in front of, well, this is geez, nearly 10 years ago at this point. I was in front of the yoga studio. I was waiting for it to open and there was a suite, um, a, a shop across the way from the parking lot. I was just sitting on the bench and all of a sudden I heard this banging on this window. I was like, what the heck's that? I look up and there's this crow. And it's flying into this window, and and I realized that the the um, the shop was there was no one, it wasn't inhabited by a business anymore, and there hadn't been paper posted up over the windows, and it was bouncing into the window because it could see through the building to the other window across the way, and it kept hitting the glass, and realizing it couldn't get through, so it would sit on the ground for a second, recover, then would fly, and try to go through the window again. And I was like, okay, what do I do? I should just try and shoot it away or whatever, try to get it from stopping hitting the window. And from where I was sitting, it was clear. It was, it was very obvious that the problem, it just couldn't see what the problem was. But I could see it from away. Oh, you're just running into glass you can't make it through to the other side because there's glass in the way. But if you just went up and over, you'd be fine. And as soon as I started walking over to it, it stepped back and flew up and over. So I find that just zooming out with perspective and challenges too, not, not only just like, yeah, all friction points and just widening our perspective. Sometimes it gives us uh, a different way to look at something and a way to see something where that that's like it's usually hidden in plain sight we just have blind spots we can't see it and taking a different perspective helps us fill in those blind spots yeah and i think that's effectively what the good teachers or the good coaches in your life do right or sometimes they're good friends mm-hmm. but um i you know i most of the time work with people that are way smarter than me like they've done really incredible things. And sometimes I go, well, you know, in, when, when I have self-doubt, I, I ask myself, why are they, why did they choose to work with me? And it's not because I, you know, have a greater IQ score or I've, you know, built a company 10 times over and made billions of dollars because I haven't. But the one thing I do know is I know myself very well and I've tested myself in a number of different circumstances. And I think a lot of the times what we do as teachers and coaches relative to, you know, whether we're working with clients in sort of a, in, in a leadership capacity or trying to help a student do something that they couldn't do before 
is you provide a, a mirror or or like a wall to bounce their thought or their you know sense off of. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in my practice of living my life, I've always sought out deep experiences with good people. And I try to learn as much as I can from the people that I choose to surround myself with. My my teachers, you know, they they might offer me a question or they might uh, offer me an observation that I would not have thought of. And so I kind of collect all of these little bits of wisdom and I think to myself, okay, like, how can I apply this in my life? Or what is the lesson here that that should be absorbed? Um, So I think it's really important for us as people to really like be careful to, to be around people of quality, not quantity, because it's those people of quality that will help you see those things, those invisible lessons or the things that we overlook. Um, cause, cause they're deep people and they care about you. They care about your ecosystem. They care about your development and they might be the ones that are willing to ask you the questions or show you the things that no, nobody else wants to, or can. Yeah, totally. Surrounding yourself with people who, who can grow you. I, I mean, there's a Rumi quote, um, be with those who help your being that I think encapsulates that very succinctly. I want to come back to the, what you were talking about in how you approach being in championships now and fighting now this place of like not wanting to um, come with a strategy that, you know, is going to win, but having access to the whole breadth of knowledge that, that you've cultivated over the past couple of decades. You know, I, I, I find that like even leading up to this call, there's a lot of like, oh my God, what are we going to talk about? I'm not even sure. There's so much. How am I going to bring any focus to it? And there's part of me that really wants to like lay out, I'm going to ask this question and this question and this question. And then there's part of me that's like, you know what? Uh, that's not really useful. And if I want to have a, the kind of conversation I want to have with Emily, you kind of have to let that all go and just be with that nervousness and settle in, ask the first question, feel her, and it will just go where it goes. But it's sort of like, um, I'm wondering how that is for you in approaching fighting now and that way of being that you're bringing to fighting where you're just open to the experience, wanting to, wanting to have access to the breadth of your knowledge and entering the arena with like, I don't know how this is gonna go, um, what that's like for you. For, for me, it's like, there's a bunch of, ah, what am I doing? I should be doing it this way maybe, or blah, blah, blah. And it's a weird thing because after I get done, it's like, it's totally fine. Or like, even right now, it's like, this is, this is amazing to be in, in, in this. There's no place I'd rather be right now. But in those moments leading up to it, there's always that part of me that's fighting, like um, maybe you should be doing more or it should be more organized or it should be this, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, I'm just wondering how those, how that goes for you now. Are you just completely comfortable with, with, not knowing how it's going to go, not knowing what you're going to do and just entering the space? Or do you have some ideas and you're holding those lightly? But the sort of the internal, the internal, what's happening internally in those moments of like, 
I'm not bringing a strategy to this. I'm going to enter the space and see how it goes and rely on everything I've been doing over the past two decades to surface. Um, I'm going to allow the moment to surface what's needed here. So I think when we're coming to something early, um, it's only natural to try to control what we think we can control. So we kind of come to the table with a plan of what we think should happen. And I think a plan is always like, it's a good thing, you know, like have an idea of the things that you want to do. Like I go into a match and I think of the different types of entries that I have that will put me into this favorable position or that favorable position. So there's always the sense of like, here's what I know I'm good at. I'm comfortable at this. Like, let's, let's start with this. But what I've discovered over the years is when you cling to that too much, when you cling to the plan too much, um, then the game becomes about scarcity and it becomes about only ex exacting those things. And then you kind of just block your access to everything else that you know. And so more often than not, when I fought, there have been times where I've won, but I would say won and not fought well. And when that's been the case, I usually am very frustrated with myself because I'm like, God, why didn't you open up and just like finish this thing? Or why didn't you just go for it? Like the opening was there or like the timing, you could have just sped this up a little bit more. And I realized that in those moments, I didn't do it because I was trying to control the outcome too much. I was trying to stick to the plan too much. I was telling myself, but you can't do that because you have to do this. And then the person has to land like this so that you can do that. And so when you start building those kinds of, uh, when you build a plan, and you get too tight on that plan and you start to expect versus be present to the outcome, you block yourself. And who knows whether this experiment of me sort of opening myself up to the degree that I am now is the way, but something that I really have tapped into that I, I appreciate is that in the last number of uh, the last three competitions and some of those competitions, I've had multiple fights is that I go in with some idea or some plan of what I'd like to do, but I also hold it lightly knowing that anything else could happen because what I, with what I do, it's an exchange of two bodies, two energies. Mm -hmm. So I can't control that person. And much like I tell a lot of the leaders that I work with, you cannot control anything outside of yourself. Fighting really proves that to you. Like you engage physically, but even with all your might, you cannot always control what, what they're going to do. How do we usually foil an attack? I make you do something that is the right response, but is the wrong outcome for you. How do I do that? I set you up. So I actually, you're still doing it. I'm not controlling you. I'm just setting up the conditions to make you do something that's better for me, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I go in and I fight someone, I'm not thinking about, okay, I have to stick to all of these outcomes and I have to make sure that I end the fight here. I go in with an idea or a plan and I just say to myself, but you know what? I'm going to feel you out and I'm going to be present to the moment. And I, and I just always bring myself back to the moment. Anytime my mind starts to wander about like what this sweep or what this submission is going to look like in a minute, I just bring myself back to feeling what's happening in the moment. And then I say, I got 22 years of jujitsu under my belt at a high level. There's no reason why I don't have some sort of an adequate response or answer to this situation. There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to trust myself. 
And that's what opens me up because I go, yeah, yeah. you know what? This is not untrue. Um, this is validated, not just in your own work, but by what other people also see in you. So like, it's kind of foolproof and yeah, Emily, just like go with it. Mm. What that's resulted in is it's, it's a much more abundant perspective in what I have to offer any given situation, because yes, there's like what the, the small things that I know that I think I should try to execute, but I also know that there's so many layers to that. And I don't just know one set of things right? Like a kid that doesn't know how to walk is only going to try to walk, uh, with the sofa, uh, on, with their hands on the sofa. They don't know what it's like to go hands off and walk to the coffee table for, you know, three, (laughs) they don't know what it's like to run a little bit faster. So you're only going to do the things that you know how to do. And I feel like at this point in my life, I'd be doing myself a disservice if I didn't trust in the 22 years that I've had doing something. I'm like, Emily, like, you're not, this isn't day one for you. Right. So, but it's the vulnerability of that risk exposure. Right. And then it's like, you know, what if I fall on my face and what if this doesn't work? But I kind of have to just tell myself, Oh, well, you know, you've gotten back up. Like what makes you think after 22 years that you're going to look like a fool and not bounce back. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's such a beautiful thing that coming from abundance and that ability to be in a situation, but I think anytime we're met with resistance, whether you're fighting or whether you're in a conversation with someone or whatever it is, we have just such automatic responses to try and get out of it as quickly as we can. Um, but I love this part of just slowing down and trusting all the wisdom that you have over your lifetime to tap into and engage with it in that moment of that tight spot. I think that's such a beautiful thing. It's really like inspiring for me to hear about right now. Well, and I think that we're we're like really caught in a in a time where everyone is over focused on like where they need to be next, mm-hmm. and they're not they're not able to sort of absorb and reflect on what they are, mm-hmm. right? Or it's like oh, on to the next thing. I'm not enough. I I, I have to do more. Uh, but when you really think about what speaks to a moment, it's not about like again, like even in this conversation the precondition of this conversation was just like, okay, I have my computer set up. I have to have my list of questions. I have my passage. I have all these things that will hopefully help make this discussion a beautiful thing. Now, if you had a premeditated list of 20 questions and you're like, these are the things that I'm going to ask Emily and we're going to get through this, then it doesn't allow for us to stop and like meander like what, like this, like you, you really enjoy this particular moment. Well, if you have an agenda and the, the agenda is already determined, you're not going to give life to the moments that are meaningful to you. Right. So I do think like, sometimes we have to give ourselves that allowance of like, okay, we know what we know. So if we know what we know, then we'll be okay. If we do things differently a little bit, you know, like we have a path, like maybe, maybe we meander off of it and we come back full circle Maybe we hit all of the questions that I had written down, but we just do it in a very unstructured way. Mm-hmm. Right? But like, but when we get too stuck on what we think should happen, 
we actually don't get to enjoy what's happening. Yeah. And the whole point is to enjoy, enjoy our existence. It's so funny. It is funny. And like, <laughs> I, I even chastise myself. Like I was talking to a friend about this earlier today. Like sometimes I'll be, you know, at the beach or I'll be in the ocean and maybe I'm trying to learn how to surf or maybe I'm just having a moment in the water or wherever. And I'll chastise myself and I'll be like, Emily, you're just dicking around. Like you should be at home coordinating this, or you should be making those contacts or whatever, whatever else I should be doing. And I chastise myself and I say, you're not working hard enough and you're not doing this right. Like you're falling behind, like you should be doing more. Um, when really the more is in just being there, you know, and being okay with doing that. So every time I feel that way, I just look back at my life and I say, you haven't been a loser your entire life. So what makes you think you're going to start now? (laughs) (laughs) It really cuts away all the the bullshit very quickly. You just have to take an extra day to do or whatever. And you're just like, Oh, Alan, you should should be like booking appointments or I should be sending back summaries or whatever. And it's just like, well, have you been a failure your entire life? Why would you just choose to be a failure now? You're kind of hardwired not to be, right? Oh, man. Let's switch gears a little bit. And just on your own learning, and it, it feels to me like you're in a bit of a transition. I don't know if that's true or not, but it feels like your competitive life is becoming something else. Uh, I know you're also just deeply engaged in transmitting knowledge. You're doing seminars, you have your own school, all, all of these different things. But I'm wondering for you as a learner, what's something that doesn't make sense for you right now, for yourself right now? Hmm. I would say, I would say that something that is perplexing me and and giving me a hard time is sort of something that I touched on a little bit earlier in this conversation, which is that, you know, I've I've largely grown by myself. I've largely had to build everything I know with my two hands, but I've also had a lot of I've chosen to have major experiential shifts in my life. You know, like I moved from Vancouver to New York and New York back to Vancouver and Vancouver to Tokyo and yada, yada, yada. And throughout, I mean, I'm 41 now throughout each stage of my life, there have been shifts, you know, there was like Mm -hmm. when I went from being an art student to being an intern, when I went from being um, a salaried employee in a more corporate industry to uh, transitioning and just jumping into jujitsu full-time. And then from jujitsu going into coaching and owning a business. Um, So I've had these major transitions in my life. And I would say that you're probably right in that I'm considering well, I'm sort of on the precipice of something, uh, some other shift transition, but I am 
I'm, I'm more scared or I, I'm more trepidatious about that this time around. I think, I think because I have a family. Mm. So there's a part of me that's like, this isn't just about a choice I'm making for myself anymore. There are now other people at stake and those people did not ask to be here. I brought them here. So what is the quality that I bring to their life if I choose to do X or Y? And so um, that that weighs on me, like to think about what I want to do, what feels organic and natural for me, and then to consider what feels organic and natural for three little people, Mm -hmm. uh, of which it could be complicated if one of them doesn't feel the same way as the other two, right? So uh, balance uh, and receptivity are are bigger elements of my life now than they ever have been Mm. because it's not just like what I do in my life, but it's how I do it. And it's like, who's involved in that ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Before it was not that way. And I feel like the having to consider those things has been really good for me. I think it's been really healthy for me, Um, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me as, um, I'm not sure how it strikes me, but the thing that strikes me, (laughs) it's kind of funny because like you have this very deep trust of yourself. And at least from what I observe in the, in the little bit I know about your school and the greater community, um, it seems like, you know, how to navigate like your school and the culture you've built there. And it sounds like there's just a, um, I don't know, reorientation or trying to figure out how that, it's like there's you, there's this outer circle and the inner circle of your family. It's like, sounds like you're navigating a space that uh, you want to bring some attention to in a different way and making sure you're, you're accounting for, like we said before, like all those different perspectives of all the people involved. Yeah. And it's also like, you know, layers of an onion or Mm. layers of a crepe cake. Like there's just so many fine, like it's not just one big cake anymore. It's like all these fine layers that keep building up. Um, And so it's like respecting all those layers for what they need to be. But then it's also having to step back and see how they integrate together. Like, do they work together? Do they not work together? Um, And also the feeling of being accountable and responsible for other people, not just myself. It's not just my growth anymore. It's my children's growth. It's my husband's growth. It's my students' growth. It's my uh, seminar, you know, outlets growth. Like there's just so many different ecosystems and needs that are woven into my decision-making now. Mm -hmm. And so as much as I have that internal voice, um, part of my internal voice is, is saying, okay, but like these people or these things are also important to you. So how do you help this balance in a way that is not, um, that is going to be fair to you in addition to being fair to those little people or those other people over there? Yeah. Is there, um, is there something Hmm. There's a couple of different 
ways I can ask the question I'm thinking about and different ways to frame this. So I'm just trying to like sort through how I want to ask this. There, there's so many decisions that you're, you're faced with in all of this stuff. And I'm wondering if you have, you mentioned quality, wanting to bring quality to the family. But within that quality, what is the quality that, is there a primary quality that sets the decision-making process that you first filter the decision-making process through? Or is there a number of them? Wondering how that works for you. Yeah, I mean, I know this, I mean, this word kind of gets overused and I, you might even say, well, how do you define that? But I want to, I, I feel that I've grown very much as a person because of the different meaningful experiences that I've had in my life. Mm-hmm. Meaningful meaning like I, I tend to gravitate towards individuals and places um, that are really abundant in the way that they interact. And particularly when I think of my family, probably because of the way that I grew up, um, I want, I, it's important for me to, to allow my children to be around people who are invested in them. You know, mm, like I, yeah. I just like people were invested in me or just like I might be invested in this landscape, you know? So when I think of the word quality, like I'm always seeking out quality experiences, like place people, places, and things that will allow my children to explore and find the best of themselves within that person, place, or thing. And I find myself being very averse to being around structures, being around individuals who are not tapped in. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've definitely been around people. And some of those people you can't escape, you know, sometimes there are people that you work with. Sometimes there are people that are your family. Sometimes it's hard to escape those things. But when I start to feel um, a pull of some sort where people that I know they're, they're kind of more extracting and they're in it for themselves. Um, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that as an individual. I don't want to be a part of that, uh, as a, as a mother, you know, or a business person. Right. When I think of quality, uh, you know, I, I really do think about that reciprocal giving of like, let's, let's share this. Like, let, 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 I hope that this will be, um, meaningful for you and it will be meaningful for me, but it can only be that way if we both meet in the middle. Right. You know, it can only be that way if we both choose to come to the table with the same energy. It won't be that way if I am giving more than you or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's so busy trying to get where they're going that relationships can feel very transactional uh, a lot of the times. And it's, it, I think it is challenging to find people you're aligned with who, um, want to give just because they want to give and are coming from that abundance of, I don't need it back from you. It might come back from you and I'll be happy to receive it, but I'm going to give it to you because it's here to give knowing that it's going to come back to me in some way, in some form, maybe not from you, but from somewhere else, I'll be fueled by that from somewhere else too. Yeah. It is a, it is a beautiful thing to find those people and to surround yourself with. Yeah. It's, um, it's hard. It's hard to be transactional about things, but I also recognize for some people, that's the only language they speak. Yeah. 
you know, and I, and I also recognize for myself that sometimes I've had to teach myself to be transactional because I've been burned so many times being overly abundant, Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I give myself to something and then it just does not give itself back to me. Um, So again, like, it's not to say that transactions are bad. It's just to say that I think there's a time and a place for them. Mm-hmm. And I would rather be in the type of situation where I can just be free and open and abundant with someone, but it's not always the case. Right. And sometimes, um, whereas in before when I was younger, I used to just kind of feel my way through things and my feeling would always be to give and to be invested and do more. And I think I realized in my age and my maturity, because I've been forced to mature with children, um, as if to say I was like a complete degenerate before, but like, (laughs) I think think you just get to a place where you're like, these little people or this business or these things are going to demand X amount of attention from me. I don't have a a bottomless pit of give. Like, I just can't do that. If I want to, if I have integrity and if I want to maintain quality in what I give to the world. I can't be just swooping, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. so it's forced me to put some boundaries up. It's forced me to be more transactional in some ways with some things. But I, I think that the overall effect is that it's been better for me. Yeah. And to bring it back to why or, or the people you want to be surrounded with, especially for your kids, it's because of that, that focus on quality, quality relationships for, for them and how it can grow them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I also, I also find it permeates into just people's ideas about their own creativity. People are just incredibly blocked creatively to begin with. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot that stops the people from tapping into that innate create creativity that we all have we all born with we all exhibited when we were younger and somehow we get trained out of that when i'm talking to people about their own creativity now it's a a lot of times it's it has that transactional quality to it. it's really subtle it's like well i want to be more creative so i can solve this problem and there's also the just creative creativity of just do it because it's something that wants to be expressed through you I love this story of Rene Redzepi in uh, restaurant Noma in, I can't even remember where it is, somewhere in Scandinavia. But he started looking at unripe strawberries. And for no reason, there was no, you know, strawberries are delicious on their own and when they're ripe. And no one was saying, hey, there's a problem with all these unripe strawberries. But he just started to consider, like, I wonder if there's something I can do with these. And he took this whole deep dive on them, started tasting them, discovered the exact perfect unripe strawberry where it tastes the best and ended up um, creating a dish out of that, that all of a sudden permeated the entire food culture. It became like the new new thing, but it didn't come from a needing to solve a problem. And there's nothing wrong with that. There are incredible businesses that get created because they solve problems. But there's also, I think, something to be said um, for the abundance of being being creative for the abundance of just being creative. I just want to see what can happen with this thing. Yeah, and that's that's not, sadly, it's not valued by our culture today. 
Mm-hmm. You see the decimation of arts programs everywhere you go. It's like the first thing to get cut, whether we're talking in an elementary school or, uh, you know, donors and taxes, like they just don't value creativity and exploration because I think we are over-focused on execution, right? Of like this thing. I, and I, I, I deeply battle that tension even within myself. There is one side of me that is super execution oriented. I'm really good at getting things done. But then there's another side of me that is quite lofty and has a lot of creative and abstract ideas, but I won't give myself the time to explore them, right? Or I feel like nobody will find any value in them. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that is also rooted to my parents never valuing my creative voice, right? So we're constantly taught and it's reinforced, like, don't be creative. You could be you know, you could cure science, you could cure cancer instead. Don't be creative. You could uh, open up a restaurant and be really successful. Don't be creative, do this other thing. But I think creativity is really, it's just our mental playground. It it allows us to do the things, as you said, that don't need to be done, but maybe should be done or expressed. And that's where we really see true dynamic things happen, right? Because it changes the way that we see the world. It changes the way that we interact with the things that we know. We just don't give ourselves the room to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful way to problem solve too. I mean, like it's a, a way to tap a different intelligence than our rational mind. And a lot of times when we're just being creative for creative sakes, some of our best insights come from that. Yeah. And it's also, um, it's funny, like Josh has a, um, Josh has a nickname for me and he calls me Gumpy. Um, have I ever told you this, Alan? No, it just sounds like a funny name. I, I'm like waiting for what that is. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and he calls me Gumpy and it's for 50% grumpy and 50% gumption. And he says, because when Emily doesn't get what she wants, like when things don't happen the way Emily wants them to, she gets grumpy. But, um, the flip side of that is he's like, gumption is a quality that you really can't teach people, you know? And I remember when he first said this to me over 10 years ago, he goes, do you know what it means? And I'm like, I don't really think I know the real definition. He's like, it's, it's like your ability to think outside the box. Like you don't do things the way everybody else does them. And he goes, and that's such a great problem solving tool, because that means when you're confronted with a challenge, you don't just go to what is predictable. And you don't go through ordinary method and means. You think of something really out there. And that's huge when it comes to solving unsolvable or creative problems that nobody's ever had to put their heads around before. Um, and so, you know, but here I was growing up most of my life thinking, why do I think so weird? Like every time I, I, I remember being in like English class and my English teacher would ask a question and I would always raise my hand to answer but every time I would answer, the, the class would look at me really confused and be like, I, I was like, am I an alien? Like, I don't know what I said wrong, but oftentimes whatever I said was not what most people were thinking. Mm-hmm. And I came to see that as sort of like an embarrassment or a shameful thing and that I should really be trying to like land on the mark and say what ought to be said. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, like those external pressures, pressures are very real. And so when you think about how you engage with young people and the message or the signal that they take back, it's like, oh, you said a different idea. And instead of celebrating that difference, celebrating that creativity and saying, hey, I never thought about it that way before. 
that's a very interesting way to look at this line from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, try again. That's not exactly what he was saying. Anybody else in the class? Right. Yeah. Then you go, oh, I guess there's something wrong with the way that I took that in. Right. Yeah. I saw this little, um, this little snippet of, of uh, a child's homework. And there were three words. I can't remember what they were, but it was like car, bus, and, and something else. And the assignment, the question said, spell these words in alphabetical order um, or, or put these words in alphabetical order. And rather than the, the child putting like, you know, bus before car, he spelled each word alphabetic, alphabetically. So it was like A-C-R and then bus was B-S-U and just went down the line. I was like, wow, this kid is like, he's got something going for him. I thought it was a brilliant insight into how he's thinking about things. And it's so different than, you know, um, cause it's a right solution. Like he's seeing things in different ways and finding different ways to solve the problem. Um, you know, the, the, the question that the question of his assignment wasn't particularly worded for, um, you know, exactly his answer was, his answer answered the question properly, but in the, I'm sure in the, in the way the teacher probably gave him marks off for that because of, you know, it was supposed to fit a certain thing. You know, I just finished um, Lila. You've got me on this. <laughs> You've got me on this Persig journey. I read um, on quality and after that, uh, I dove into Lila, and one of the things Perstick talks about is this cultural immune system. And, and it's like we can have ideas, and that idea might be really incredible for a culture or a ecosystem that we're in, but the ecosystem is trying to protect its own ideas so much that it's almost like a, a, a germ on the body's immune system and the, the, the culture will use its immune system to purge that idea as quickly as it can. Now, from what I see, your school has an incredible culture that is really a reflection of you. The quality that seems to be present there is everyone's learning for their own sake. Um, Also not just learning about what Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, but also able to take principles of that and apply it into their entire life to become a better person in general, navigate other things in their life. It's like a container for their growth all over. And this is like, you know, a really beautiful thing to me. And um, so I'm wondering how you, I mean, maybe you just explained it with, with your, uh, with your own, um, example of a child but how do you deal with navigating uh, you know a student bringing in another idea or something that may not seem like it fits the culture how do you how do you go about incorporating things that are new new perspectives new um, new ways of doing things new things that you hadn't seen but seem like what? What is that? You don't know. Uh, 
really about um, in, in in a culture, in your culture particularly? Um, so I think a key to a lot of this is um, inclusivity and like the perspective of inclusivity and then also being out there and touching things in real time. And so what I mean by that is I... I, a lot, the vast majority of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu schools in the United States are well, probably around the world are led by men, by men, vast majority. There's very few that have part female or if not all female ownership. Most women are relegated to being like the office manager or teaching women and children's classes. Um, when I talk about inclusivity and diversity, it's like, I want to be able to demonstrate a different kind of leadership in the room. And I'll demonstrate that from being at the front of the room, just like everybody else. I think when we visually see someone like us, it asks for, it, 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 it generates the motivation, motivation to participate, the motivation to dream, the motivation to contribute because we go, oh, somebody like me is up there doing it. So maybe I have something to offer. Mm -hmm. So I invite new ideas. I invite new things. Um, but the other end of that, which is sort of like going out there and touching that thing, being a part of stuff, whether it's being a part of a class that I'm teaching, participating in a class that one of my students is teaching Mm. Going to a friend's school and training in a different environment, going and teaching a seminar on the other side of the country. I try to, uh, I guess, take the role of being a leader and being a student. And so by leading, I can sort of uh, demonstrate and embody the values that are important for me to try to cultivate in my student body. But then I always try to make myself take the role of a student. And so it's kind of oscillating between the two. And I think what that does is it kind of helps you keep things on track, right? So when you're a leader and you're only the leader, always the leader, I think sometimes you lose touch with what the students need or what the students are feeling or what the students might want to know. But when you are the student, you still put yourself in that place of, oh, like this was a good change or like this type of a change kind of resulted in this type of a thing. Do I like that? Do I not like that? And so I just I'm always careful to try and have my foot in each door because <laughs> I think there's I think they work so tightly together. And when I've seen people indulge too much in one or a, like one extreme or the other, we lose something. So again, yeah, yeah. it comes back to that spectrum of yeah. like how we, like the, the two extremes or the two ends that we have to recognize because that that's what creates the polarity. That's the balance. But then it's not just relying on the two ends, but like exercising the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's being very intentional about, about who you're choosing to receive information and give information of at any given moment and understanding what you want to get out of a particular experience. And also demonstrate to the people after me mm -hmm. how to, how to create and how to believe in the culture that you are a part of. So mm -hmm. what I mean by that is I will like, I allow my, I actually love for my advanced students to step up and want to teach advanced classes. Right. Um, in jujitsu, we have 
it's, it's hard for a head instructor to continuously learn all of the new techniques and all of the new things that are happening and then to be an expert and to be able to teach everybody else. And so I invite my most motivated advanced students to who are exploring to share what they are passionate about with everyone else. Mm-hmm. But when they share and I participate in their class, I also hope that signals to the white belt, like to the newer students, oh, like this person's worth learning from because my the head instructor is learning from this person too. It's right, kind yeah. of taking the hierarchy away from how we need to learn things and sort of saying, oh, we can learn from everybody. Yeah. Right. So maybe maybe Emily has just a, a a longer or a different outlook or perspective on how school should be managed or what's healthy here. But technique or artistry, we can learn from it, anybody. So like we should do that. Right. Yeah. I find that so beautiful because you've you've clearly like looked at the different perspectives of of your ecosystem and and. You know how you want to operate, how 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 do how would a new student see me? And how can I bridge the gap in who I want to be and how I want to create this culture through the lens of, of a beginning student? I find this really um, incredible. I yeah. I think the other thing that I also want people to be able to walk away with is it's not me. Mm-hmm. It's not you. It's not him. It's our personal experience of all of this. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to make you a great student or right. an athlete. You're yeah. going to make yourself that person how do you do that it's not a cult of personality it's not one individual that's going to show you the way you have to cultivate the way right so the only way to demonstrate that i think is to show people like look it's not my name on the door i'm not the head instructor in all the classes i don't want you to just trust me you should i hope you do trust me but i'm not the end all and be all and so by learning to trust and embody trust in other in the other people around you I try to create a better sense of community so that my school is then a sustainable ecosystem of growth, as opposed to it being a place where the head instructor burns out or nobody's motivated to learn because they're not being told exactly what they have to do. Yeah, that's powerful. I love that. So much to learn from that. Um, I know we're running up in time. I want to ask a question about some of the people who've, who've come on the podcast and so many people I work with, um, it, you know, they have a particular love and passion for their art, for their craft. And they also are very engaged with their craft because they see it as a, a, a tool for learning for life in general. And I find sport athletics, a particular, uh, no, it's an interesting thing to train for competition. So much of our life, if we're training for competition, our life is, is, is that training. It's a particular focus, but it's all geared towards a few moments on the stage. But when I think about life, it's like we're performing all the time. And the amount of time we spend training for life is, is very little if we're training at all, mostly none. <laughs> so I'm wondering how you, how you navigate that, how you take your learning from, from uh, something with very, it's a safe environment to, to play the edges. 
The rules are the rules. They're not going to change. You know exactly what you're going into. Um, but life, there are no rules. The rules can change in an instant. It's a lot more of a, a wicked environment, a lot more uncertain. So I'm wondering how you navigate those things and how you bring the principles of your learning through through competition and through um, through your art of combat sports into your life without it. Um, well, I'll just stop there actually, not even without anything. Um, so I think I've heard Josh refer to this as um, learn locally, apply universally. And that's not something that's super easy for a lot of people to do. Like a lot of people will learn locally and stay local. Yeah. Um, and I like to think of it as like principles that you can take beyond the medium. And I do, I try to do that within jujitsu, but then I also try to, I, I actively try to practice it learning from other mediums and bringing it into jujitsu or into life. So something that I took up a lot over COVID was I was trying to learn how to garden and cook. Hmm. And I, you know, one of my favorite restaurants in New Jersey um, would, would put on these cooking demonstrations once every few weeks. And during the cooking demonstration, they would pick a theme. So you could sign up for like, let's say a class on um, lemons all of the courses that you're going to eat that evening are themed with lemon. And then the demo, uh, there'd be two or three cooking demos and they would all be uh, preparing some of the dishes that you would, that you were eating. And the executive chef, uh, chef Chris Albrecht, he has worked in a lot of uh, big kitchens around the world, a very highly trained chef makes phenomenal food. Um, I always really enjoy learning from him because he's got a good personality as a teacher He's not just looking for, it's funny. I'm not sure that he recognizes in the moment that um, he's taking a cooking principle and applying it universally, but like I would pick up on it or I would ask questions that would elicit this kind of an answer. And so two of my favorite principles from him, one time we were cooking pasta, German spatzel, and I was pressing the pasta dough into the boiling water and then scooping it out and putting it into ice water and then scooping it out after it cooled onto a plate. And Chris says to me, I've, I've salted all the buckets of water. And I said, huh, well, that seems like a lot of salt because I know that there's quite a bit of salt in the dough. Why would you salt so many times? And he said, you, whenever you're making food, you want to flavor at every step to create depth. And I was like, interesting. And the moment he said that, I was like, he's not talking about pasta. I mean, this is everything. <laughs> but it is, but the way it came out was like, we're talking about pasta. Mm -hmm. right? And then um, one of the last classes I took with him, I don't even remember what I asked, but he said, good food should create more questions than answers. Well, fuck, mm. like, that's life too, right? Like great moments should create more questions than answers. Good humans create more questions than answers. And so I try to play like learning these principles from other people, other mediums. And then I try to transplant that into the work that I do in jujitsu, right? And so I'm constantly interchanging all these types of things. Hmm. And, um, you know, like something that I learned from wrestling and jujitsu, oftentimes when people want to take somebody down, 
they're trying to pick up somebody's leg. Like, and so if I'm 150 pounds and my opponent's 220 pounds, it's almost an impossible leg to pick up. I'm going to put a lot of energy into doing something that's very difficult. But if you just change your, your strategy, and in this case, it would be push, push your opponent. Anybody can push. And even if it's a heavy body, if you push, it will create a difference. It will shift their weight. And so when you push on the side and you force the person to shift their weight onto one leg, what happens to the leg that you're trying to pick up? It becomes lighter. Right. And so it's kind of like this idea of like, well, when I put a lot of effort or energy into making something happen, how much am I fighting something the wrong way? Like, is there an easier mm -hmm. way for me to make this thing happen? Right. Yeah. Um, so I always think about trying to translate the, the principles back and forth. And um, and I use a lot of analogies and story making and how I teach and communicate, because I often find that people are much more uh, amenable to learning and adopting something that is impactful when they understand it. Yeah. Not everyone will understand the mechanics of what you're supposed to do, or they will attach themselves to the mechanics. And they won't really understand the rule or the principle behind it. Right. Back to the pasta class. Someone could just be like, okay, yeah, sure. Press the pasta out. And there's a lot of salt at every step. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they don't understand why. Why? Yeah. The um, why behind it. Yeah. Or yeah, I know I'm supposed to take this person down. So I'm going to pick up the leg. Yeah. Got it. Okay. But mm -hmm. do it this way versus that way. It's a lot easier. Right. Yeah. It was a teacher mm -hmm. and a coach. Sometimes I'm looking for those holes or those pockets of, does this person really get what I'm talking about? Or is there something missing? And if there's something missing, what is the story? What is the analogy? What can I give them that will help them internalize what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 The why is so important. Um, Cause it really, that's how we learn how to trend. At least from what I see for myself, that's how I learn how to transfer. So it's like a how-to is only pertinent to that place. But if we understand the principle behind it, it's then that we can begin to transfer it to different areas, to different domains through different Because you have a problem for yourself. Yeah. At that mm -hmm. point, you make it your own. Yeah. And I don't think any real learning occurs when you don't make it your own. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of test you take where you just have to regurgitate right. material. Yeah. You don't learn anything, right? Yeah. But if someone asks you to, if someone asks you a very deep question mm -hmm. about the topic and you're forced to create a paragraph answer, that stays in your brain. Yeah. But it's, you had to internalize what that was. Yeah. I mean, I like this example that people sometimes give of technically, we probably know more information than Einstein did, but he knew the why behind all the knowledge that he had. And we don't, <laughs> we don't have the same depth. <laughs> yeah. Depth matters. Yeah. Um, beautiful. Emily, thanks so much for being here. I want to make sure I get you off the call and at the right, at, in the next few minutes. Um, I do have one more question, but before we go to that, uh, where can people find you? You have a bunch of writing and stuff that's really beautiful. I would recommend for people to go listen to your podcast, Master and Apprentice. It's one of, um, it's just a incredible collection that explores mastery and apprenticeship and that journey. So I recommend people go there, but where else can people find you? Thanks, Alan. Um, 
So I, I guess uh, the, the most immediate funnel would be to either go to Instagram, Emily Kwok, BJJ, and it's K-W-O-K. Um, Kwok is very difficult for a lot of people to write. <laughs> 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 but just as one word, Emily Kwok, BJJ. Uh, I have a link tree there that links to a bunch of stuff that I've done. Um, or you can go to my website, emilykwok.com, and you'll find uh, you know all the pertinent info there. Beautiful. Um, any words of wisdom or any advice you'd like to share? Anything that you'd like to share with the audience? You know, I, I think maybe I would just encourage people to, um, to try to slow it down every once in a while and just ask themselves the question of like, is this something that I really want to be doing? Is this something that I'm very interested in pursuing or am I doing this for another reason? And um, sounds like a, you know, superficial or a dumb question to ask, but really like our intention of why we do things, if, if we don't truly love, if we are not truly drawn to that thing that we are doing in that moment, it's very rare that we're going to have what it takes to get through the difficult parts. It's going to be, it's, it, it's not likely that we're going to continue to pursue it beyond that, you know, one bit of time. Um, so if we are pursuing more meaningful, um, and value add experiences in our life, I think we just always have to be careful to make sure that we're, we're listening to ourselves. Yeah. Beautiful. Final question, Emily, for what in your life are you grateful that you take for granted? Hmm. What in my life am I grateful that I take for granted? I know this might sound a bit strange, but I might just say um, my, my circumstance and my makeup. I'm half Japanese and half Chinese. Uh, I was born in Japan, but I was raised in Canada. Um, at times I've been uncomfortable being the other, like I'm not fully one thing, not fully another. I'm Canadian, but I'm mixed race. I'm American, but I'm from Canada. Like I, I feel like in many ways I'm a very transient being and that I don't belong to any group. Um, but I think in many ways not belonging has given me the fluidity and the ease to move between. Mm. And I think that that has helped me a lot with not creating, a, you know, where it, we're, we're in a world where a lot of people are like, I'm not being given this opportunity. I can't do this. I can't do that. I was never, I'm not going to say, you know, you weren't marginalized or this should have happened or it didn't happen. But what I will say is I, from feeling so transient and not belonging in my whole life, uh, I just never let that be a reason for me to not try and to not do and to not create. And sometimes when people ask me, well, how did you do this? Or how did you do that? Um, I think I do have this to think that in my loneliness, uh, I've also been able to find my path. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And thanks for being here. Um, like I said, at the beginning top of the podcast you're one of my favorite people. I learned so much from you, whether we're in a coaching conversation, whether I'm reading your articles, whether I'm listening to your podcast, whether whatever conversation we're in, whether we're having dinner together, 
Um, yeah, I love you so much. And thank you for being here, Emily. Thank you, Alan. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for being here and for listening to this conversation with the ever insightful Emily Kwok. I was so excited for this one and I hope you've learned lots. I've linked ways to explore Emily's world in the show notes, and I particularly encourage you to read her essay, Being the Conscious Competitor, and to listen to her podcast series called The Master and the Apprentice. To support our efforts here at Touching Greatness, please consider subscribing to the podcast, sharing an episode with a friend, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, or emailing your thoughts and feedback. I'm so grateful for your continued support. I'm looking forward to being with you next time. As we part, I will leave you with words from Linda Silverman, who is a renowned psychologist that works with gifted children. The pursuit of excellence is a personal journey into higher realms of existence, a journey that enriches the self and the world through its bounty. It is the crucible that purifies the spirit, the manifestation of life's longing for evolution.